Uh, today we're going to be going over chapters 11 and 12 today. 11 and 12, eschatology and expansion, and eschatology and consummation. These are the two chapters we'll be hitting today. If you're keeping up uh, in the book and you want to get started for next time, read the next two chapters, chapter 13, eschatological time frames, and chapter 14, eschatological features. We're really going to be diving into the systematic portion of the Sunday School uh, next week as we really dive into what uh, post-millennialism over and against Amil and uh, pre-mill and dispensationals believe about particular features and events found in the book of Revelation, uh, as well as Matthew and Daniel. Uh, so that is our trajectory. That's where we are going. Um, but before we get started today with our topic, let, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, indeed be with us today uh, as we study these things, these things that you present to us in your word. I pray that uh, it would be edifying to your saints that we would learn uh, much of you and that would uh, learn much of ourselves and what we ought to do in response to that glorious salvation that you have given us uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I pray that uh, the, uh, the conversation would be glorifying to you as well and that you would uh, be with us throughout the week as we go forward um, as your soldiers, as those who are commanded to march forward uh, under the banner of Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, today we are going to be asking, of course, a question that uh, has kind of been on our mind for many weeks already, but that is, should we expect the kingdom to expand? Should we expect the kingdom to expand? This is the theme, the first theme that we're going to come to uh, today. We already talked about last week uh, those themes of uh, what was uh, in creation, was eschatology uh, already nascent in creation that we see uh, God and uh, expecting that Adam should expect something or anticipate something, uh, and indeed he did. He did anticipate uh, the uh, the dominion that he was ought, he ought to have taken through work, through uh, having children with his wife, um, and then of course though he failed um, in doing uh, his his duty in the garden of guarding and keeping the garden, uh, God still made a way for that to be possible. We still see that dominion was still taken uh, by uh, Adam's. Adam's progeny, um, and then we see that he was also anticipating and expecting one to come and to redeem him uh, there in Genesis 3. We then also spoke then of uh, what was anticipated in the Old Testament, as then from Genesis 3 onward, uh, we see that again and again and again, Christ is being predicted, and there was this uh, idea that not only would God's particular people in Israel be uh, be saved, but God had particular people in all nations that he was going to save, and this was going to happen and come through uh, the work of Jesus. This is all over the Old Testament as well, so this was not something uh, that should have come as a surprise to the Pharisees, though through their, uh, their faulty interpretation of so many of those prophecies, uh, they anticipated something else. Um, and so that is why, of course, they killed the Lord of glory. They did not expect him to be as he was. Um, but that was through their own sin, not because of what the Old Testament text actually says, because as we showed so many times in the Old Testament, we are looking forward to uh, Christ and his kingdom and what Christ said of his kingdom. And then we talked about realization. We talked about how Christ brings us all together and his coming. And now, as we talk about him coming and then him rising from the dead, as he, as he then rises not only from the dead, but then is raised into heaven, uh, his ascension, 
we're going to be talking about the mandate that he gives right there in Matthew 28. So we're going to hit Matthew 28 as a big passage this morning. Um, and because though uh, all mills and free mills typically accuse us of reading too much into the test, this text, I think is still a very, very, very important text um, as it relates to our reason for hope, our reason for uh, a hopeful and optimistic outlook as far as dominion is concerned, as far as expansion of the kingdom of God is concerned. So let's read that passage this morning. And if someone could read it for us um, as we get started, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Thank you. So we see this is the Great Commission. This is Christ giving his commission to his apostles, giving them that uh, authority to go and to start the church, as they indeed do throughout the book of Acts, um, and giving them this command to do so. Um, so let's, let's kind of sit here on this, on this passage just for a second as we consider what is Christ really saying to his disciples, um, and this is uh, what... Uh, Gentry kind of considers here for us at the beginning of his chapter on page 241. Um, what does it really mean? What is that first sentence? That first sentence there, all authority that he speaks, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I guess the first question that would naturally come to our mind as we consider that sentence um, is doesn't Christ already have all authority? Christ is the second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is sovereignly in control of all things, um, has been from the beginning, right? God stands outside of time. So what does then Christ mean by saying all authority has been given to me um, if he is God and indeed he should already have all authority? Any any guesses to, uh, to what Christ means by that? He's communicating to his men, so mm-hmm. he's trying to talk. He is talking to their level, yeah. There is something there going on, for sure. Mm-hmm. There is, this is, A, does this harken back a little bit to what we've seen in the Old Testament already, especially in those Psalms that talk about a king who is coming, a son who will be given the, the throne of the kingdom, right? Um, right? He says, Father says, ask of me, and I will give you the kingdoms for your inheritance. And Bonson's favorite quote in response to that is, do you think that he didn't ask? Um, clearly he did, because here is, there is something here that is, uh, though it is, it is right and, and, and true to say that the Trinity has from all time been sovereignly in control of all things, no matter what, there is now a, a, a manifestation and a, a more clear bringing into to view the authority that, that Christ as the God-man, as the resurrected God-man now has, because he has been vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. And now, what have the Jews been seeing in the Old Testament for so long? The fact that, that nations are going to be brought in, that all nations, and we'll see some of these Old Testament passages here again today, um, that kind of expect 
this, this bringing in of the Gentiles, bringing in of the nations under, uh, well, as, as John will talk about, and to graft it into the vine. Uh, Paul speaks of that as well. Um, or the, uh, as Ezekiel talks about, the, the tree, this great cedar tree we'll look at, um, that then many, uh, many will come and seek refuge under. Um, this is all coming into the viewpoint under Christ now having his reign uh, in the spiritual sense as his kingdom now is inaugurated and now is going to be expanded. But also here we, sh- we should consider not only that, that Christ now has this special authority, but then that this authority is not only in heaven, but on earth, right? Christ has real authority on earth. We shouldn't just gloss over that. Um, and then that is then the, the premise and now there is the command, right? The command has a premise. He's saying uh, he wouldn't have said, I have all authority unless that, if that had nothing to do with the expansion of the kingdom. But then he goes on to say, go therefore, because I have all authority on heaven and on earth, go therefore into all the earth, right? And he's saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. Now, there are some things here uh, that we should consider. That what, what, what is the command? If there was one thing here that you could, if you could just sum up in one or two words, the command that Christ gives to his disciples here, what might that be? I ask this for a particular reason mm-hmm. and teach teach that's a, that's a good word right teaching people right those things that are found in the gospels those things that are found in the teachings of christ right um the as we as they teach what should they expect what are they what are they uh i guess that really is kind of inherent in the word right to make a disciple right the word disciple comes from uh, the Latin uh, word discipuli, that is a student, someone who is learning something. Um, and so the disciples are, these apostles, those who are sent out, are called disciples in the, in the New Testament and the Gospels. And now Christ is telling them to go and to make many disciples, many who are learning the things of the Lord. Um, now, in this, what I think is missed by, and what Gentry points out that is missed by many of those that are in the non uh, post-millennial camps um, is that they don't want to really have that full orb idea of what it means to make a disciple. They will say that what this command here is, is that there ought to be many that are saved, that there ought to be many that are converted, um, but there is something at the very least lost, particularly, he says, in the pre-millennial camp, um, that uh, th- there shouldn't be a, a push toward, or at least maybe that's almost secondary. The making disciple part is secondary, um, that the conversion experience is what is primary, that, that God is, or Christ is telling the disciples, go, therefore, and uh, be a witness. Just be a, a witness to the gospel in the world, right? And then as you preach the gospel, as you witness that gospel, then maybe there will be those that have this, this dramatic conversion experience. But um, is the command here... To mere, and, and, and Gentry's not denying that we ought to be good witnesses. There are many other places in the, in the scripture that call us 
a witness. That's actually where the word martyr comes from. Martyr is, people are called martyrs because that Greek word martyr means witness, and that is the best witness uh, that one could give, at least in the mind of the early church, was that you could die for, for your faith. So we're not denying that what ought to be witnesses, but is that the, is that nearly what Christ is commanding here, or is that, is that even the main thrust of what Christ is commanding here? And the answer to that is, is, is no. He, he does tell us to be witnesses, but that, that word is not even used here. And yet, and when you talk to so many within most broadly evangelical camps, that's what they will, they'll tell you the job of the, in evangelism is, or the job of the Christian is in the world, is, is to just to be a good witness, right? And being com, uh, obedient to God's commands, being obedient to the law, really becomes this thing folded into that, right? Well, don't, don't do that. Don't be unloving, because that would ruin your witness, right? And so then everything seems to be centered then merely on bringing a witness to the gospel instead of a full orb. No, we are doing this out of obedience to God, out of a love for him and who he, he, uh, who he is. And because this is what God has commanded us and made us for from the very beginning, and that we then go and make disciples of all the nations, we want them to do that as well. We are not saying, I, want, I go into Estonia, to, to give an example, and I just want them to just say, yes, uh, Christ, that's awesome. I believe it's all good. And then we leave them to do whatever they would like to do. We are not looking for nominal Christianity. We're not looking just merely that they profess. We're looking for them to, with their whole hearts as a people, begin to obey everything that Christ has commanded. And then the natural next question that we have to ask about this passage is, if Christ commanded us to do these things, does he expect us to fail? And I think the natural answer to that question is no. Um, I think you would have to begin to uh, start to, to see things in the text that are not there, or at least try to twist other texts into seeing something, some other kind of vision to say that Christ then expected a failure from the command that he gave to his people and to his disciples. Um, there seems to be not only... Does he say, I command you to do these things? And not only, just even by that, should we expect that there should be a success here? But then he says, and lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. Why would he tie that to the end unless he expected some kind of success to come out of what his apostles were about to do? And this is indeed exactly what his apostles do as they go into the end of the book of Acts and go all throughout the Roman Empire and then begin to preach the word of God and... If you were to ask them, were they successful in their mission, they'd probably tell you, indeed, we were. Uh, look, at, look at what Christ, uh, through us, did in the Roman Empire, all the way into the very borders of Scotland, all the way into Persia, all the way into India. Uh, the, the gospel went forth, uh, and it completely changed the entire makeup of uh, the empire that was ruling the known world at the time. So, they had this idea. They went out... And they were successful, and now the Christ is still with his church, and the church continues on with the same mission of going into the world and making disciples of all nations. But even more than just this command, because they will say, uh, many in the other camps will say, we harp so much on this, you can't just say just because it's a command that somehow we should expect uh, success, right? May, some might say, oh, well, God commands you to... Uh, to not 
steal, but there have been Christians that have stealed before, so then just because there's a command doesn't mean he should expect success. Well, that's when we can turn to other words of Christ, because he indeed does talk about this elsewhere. So let's turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We're going to read a lot of this chapter. Actually, we're probably going to read the whole thing. There are many, many parables here, and they all speak directly to this in some form or fashion. So if someone would like to read the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll walk through the parables one by one. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll read it. All right. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some 112, some 60, some 30. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that was what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and, care, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leaven. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will uh, be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather, it out, of his, gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that, had, that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to the shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out, his, out of his treasure things new and and old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. 
When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Awesome. Well, that's a, a lot to take in, perhaps. But there is many different pictures and many perspectives here that we get on the kingdom of heaven again and again and again. Christ paints for us another picture of what the kingdom of heaven is to look like. And he starts out here with this vision of a sower, someone who is sowing seeds to, uh, to different parts of the ground, right? And he talks of different ways in which uh, the, the gospel then can be uh, ignored, right, by those that hear it. Uh, or be rejected outright, or be taken up for a little while, but then because of the things of the world uh, can be choked, as he says, by those things of the world, right? Uh, and so we see here a, a vision, and, and not this really is not going to offer something that uh, is going to really be uh, something that anyone objects to in the Christian faith. We see a, a command to evangelize, right? A command to go out. And, and what, what should we expect when we evangelize? Should we expect uh, that every... Uh, man, woman, and child that hears the gospel is going to immediately convert and become part of the church? Uh, well, indeed, uh, no. Christ is even uh, commanding us to expect uh, that there may be some that ex seem to accept the gospel, uh, become part of the church, may become part of the church for years and, and be with us, uh, but then they may uh, fall away. And indeed, this is what the disciples experienced. Paul even talked about this with his, uh, with his friend Demas, who he thought uh, was with him, was even preaching the word with him. Uh, and then uh, left because uh, Paul says that he loved things of the world more uh, than the gospel. So this is uh, should be something that is a kind of opens the, the uh, curtain for us and, and makes us uh, have a, a, a realistic sense of what uh, what's going to happen as we go out and, and try to uh, or or obey God and Christ in His great commission there in Matthew 28. Uh, but do we, do we even see here, before we even get to the other parables, because the other parables give us a picture, I think, that, that gives us a, a full-orbed idea of what the kingdom of God is going to look like, but do we even see here this idea of expansion, even nascent in this, this parable? Maybe not even, maybe nascent is the wrong word. It's not all that nascent. Um, it is, uh, do, do we not see here, even in that, that the end there where he says, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, uh, some... A hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Now, he's there showing that we shouldn't expect that the, the word of God, uh, that if we were to go into all nations all immediately today, that every single nation would respond in the exact same way. Right? We, we're seeing some uh, have had great uh, success all at once. Some, it takes more time. Now, we, are, we expect that over time, eventually, yes, all nations will uh, repent and turn to God. Um, but it is, it is saying that, yes, there are some times you go and you plant a church and you get hundreds and hundreds of people coming in. Some, some churches, it's not going to be the case necessarily, but he wouldn't say something like hundredfold. That is, that is quite 
uh, a, a multiplier of their applied to what he's talking about, um, unless there was expectation of some kind of expansion. Um, and it is our job to be obedient, faithful, and uh, patient. Um, and the Lord works through us, um, and the Lord brings about uh, those whom he wants to bring to himself. But then we also see other pictures being painted here, and this is perhaps one that is very important for uh, Reformed in general, for the Presbyterian in general, the, the uh, parable of the tares, or the parable of the weeds, as some translations will put it. Uh, here we see, and this is something that uh, has been debated back and forth, but uh, what does it mean then that the kingdom is a wheat field in which there are many tares? What does it mean that the kingdom of God is like a wheat field in which there are many tares? Some will, will say this is speaking to the whole world, and indeed it is. It does say in verse 38, the field is the world. Um, but we also know that this is also speaking of the kingdom, because you can go down to verse 41. It says the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law, law uh, breakers. That is, those who are the fairest within this field. And they're going to throw them into the furnace. Here we already see uh, the doctrine of, of hell, right? That hell exists. It is a place that, uh, that there will be conscious torment of those who refuse to bow the knee uh, to Christ in this life. Um, but what we see here then that the post mill is so, uh, so keen to point out, right? And the gentry does point out um, is that we do not see uh, that the son of man sows a tear field or a weed field. He sows a wheat field. There are wheat. There is much wheat in the wheat field. There are tares in the wheat field, but it is not a tear field where there is wheat in it, right? So that is to say, there seems to be, there. you wouldn't call it a wheat field unless the majority of what is in the field is indeed wheat. Um, and this then goes on to speak of then how we should expect expansion in that regard, that there is seed being sown. God is the one that is sowing it, and he is bearing patiently with long-suffering uh, for the world um, as he waits, um, as he brings in all whom he elects to gather in, um, and then therefore allows for the tares to grow for a time. Uh, but there is going to be that day of reckoning when those tares will be cut uh, from their roots and thrown into uh, the barn that he says is prepared for fire. And then we see the idea put forward of the mustard seed and the leaven. These are hit right back to back. And this, of course, if this does not scream expansion to us, then I don't know what does. This really kind of hammers home this idea that the kingdom of God expands, right? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branch. And this actually points to another Old Testament passage that uh, is actually a parallel here. If you go to Ezekiel with me, Ezekiel 17, you'll see this idea that it's a tree and that there are, there are birds making nests within it. That, for a, a Hebrew audience, they would have immediately heard Ezekiel in what he said in chapter 17. And I'll read just these two verses very quickly, and then we'll go back to Matthew. But in Ezekiel 17, starting in verse 22, it says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself 
will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it on the high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it may bear, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. I bring low and high tree and make, ho make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it. That is would immediately come to the mind of the Hebrew here as Christ says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it grows into a mighty tree. What does God just said? He said, I will make I will make the little tree into nothing or into a great tree, and I will make the great tree into nothing. So that is there's already a parallel here of Christ saying, the, the smallest of seeds will I make into a great tree. And then he then even gives that parallel with the birds. The birds from all nations, does Ezekiel say, will come under the branches of this tree planted in Israel. And then so too do we see the birds of the air making nests in the branches. And then we see in the next verse, he immediately speaks of the kingdom as leaven, as leaven, as yeast that makes bread to rise, right? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven, till the bread, the dough rises and is made ready to become bread. Now, how do other, uh, other camps view these? Well, I think we see, and I think, I hope you'll see in, in this quote that I'm about to give that, that there seems to be a way that the, the text has to be twisted in order for it to, to conform to. Uh, this man, this is a, a, a very famous dispensationalist by the name of, of Walbert. Um, he said this particularly about the mustard seed. He said, the mustard seed suggests rapid but unsubstantial growth of the mystery aspect of the kingdom and that the birds of the air perch in its branches referring to evil influences of those who are not even in the sphere of profession that relates to church. And that seems to be reading something into the text in my mind. I don't see that substantiated there in these verses. Uh, but he's saying the birds is, are evil ones in the church, uh, though that doesn't seem to be indicated here. Um, he goes on to try to show that birds are always a metaphor for evil uh, in the Old Testament, but Gentry goes on to show, well, there, no, there are times when birds are a metaphor for, for things neutral and for things good. Birds are not always a metaphor for, uh, for, for evil. And this is something that we have to be, be weary of, is, right, is that we can read so much into symbols. We can say, oh, well, this symbol symbolized this here, and does that mean that in every single instance that when the Scripture brings up that symbol that that's what it's symbolizing? No, it's the scriptures speak on, uh, they speak as, as we do, though, though perfect. Uh, we speak, right, with metaphors sometimes. Hey, this is like this. And sometimes we mean this aspect of that thing, and sometimes we mean this aspect of that thing. That is natural. That's, that is not uh, a sinful way to produce metaphors, and the, the scriptures do that all the time. And then he does this as well with the, the metaphor of uh, the leaven. Walver then goes on to say that leaven makes the dough look much larger than it really is without adding any food value. It works to puff up the dough like the externalism of the Pharisees. Leaven is universally used to represent evil. 
So again, I think, I think Walver Dover playing his hand as he looks at these two symbols and says, well, they must represent evil. Otherwise, the text is going to take him to a conclusion that he would probably not like to, to take, right? That there, this does not seem to be speaking of evil, and yet he is, he is trying so hard to find uh, a way in which these things can represent the expansion and the ever-growing nature of evil instead of the expansion and ever-growing nature of good, of the kingdom of God, um, which is really, the text has nothing more to say. It's very simple, right? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. We know the kingdom of God is like leaven and it grows. We don't see any mention of evil, of wickedness. Uh, the mention there is specifically of the growing nature of the kingdom of God. This, the rest of this really does, uh, and I, I apologize, I don't have much time to really dive into the, the rest of this chapter, but we see, of course, the kingdom of heaven being like that of a hidden treasure, of a pearl of great value, of it being of more value and esteem than anything that we can possibly imagine. This idea of growth, of expansion, continues to parallel this idea that is all throughout scripture, which is the idea that Gentry brings forward of gradualism. And what do I mean by gradualism? Expansion implies gradualism, right? Expansion is not uh, an immediate manifestation uh, as in like a, uh, just a conjuring something out of nothing, right? Uh, that God, when he works and he creates things, he doesn't do so just by snapping his fingers open. There it all is. It's all completely done. There is no growth necessary. There is, he, uh, as the Lord of the universe and wanting to display his glory and his power and, and, and write a, a story of what is going on and his work in his creation, he chooses to do things gradually. And how do we know this? This is a theme that's all throughout the, the Bible. We start even all the way back in creation, right? Did God snap his fingers and everything in creation was all there all at once? No, he took six days to create everything and he did so in an order and through a story that he then uh, that he then writes for us through his servant Moses, and so we see then the glory of God on display through the way in which he worked gradually over six days. We see this idea of dominion in the uh, uh, in the account of Genesis as Adam is to go forward and spread throughout all the earth. That doesn't happen all overnight. That is something that is gradual. There is an expansive, but there is a gradual nature to the expansion. And then we see this with redemption. Uh, we see this with revelation, right? Not all of the Bible just popped into our, our, our hands all at once. Now, as the church in this age, we have it all for us. But the people of God saw the expansion of God's revelation, the gradual nature of God's revelation, as first he gave them the Pentateuch, and then he gave them uh, the histories, and he gave them certain prophets over time. Uh, these things came. And then, of course, we even see this in our own, uh, in our own lives as we are sanctified, are we sanctified all at once uh, as soon as the Spirit comes upon us and unites us to Christ? Are we then perfect? Of course not. We are sanctified. There is a, a gradual process by which we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ and more and more die into sin. Um, and so then, Gentry argues that all of these themes, if, if the way that God seems to work every single time in creation, dominion, redemption, revelation, and in sanctification— is through a gradual expansion, then in the kingdom of God would we not expect him to work in the exact 
same way. That there is a expansion and that it gradually continues to fill the earth. This is shown a time and again, even in the Old Testament, uh, as we see then this tree, of course, that Ezekiel already mentioned. As we see the uh, that famous passage there in Daniel, if you remember, the kingdoms of the world, right, uh, represented in this great statue of many different metals and, and stone. Uh, and yet what happens that there is a stone that is uh, tossed to it and destroys it, and that that stone grows into a great mountain uh, that expands through all the earth. That is the image there that we see of the kingdom of God. And it is, it is, uh, it is gradual, but it is expansive in its nature. But if it is going to continue to gradually expand, should we then not expect there to be a time when it is consummated, when it all comes to fruition? And that is chapter 12. And we'll very quickly hit on some of the themes of chapter 12, though a lot of what chapter 12 hits on what we're going to be talking about next week as we dive into the systematic uh, portion of the book as he brings up the different features, themes in Revelation particularly. Uh, but also in Thessalonians and Matthew and in Daniel. Uh, but we're going to see then that if there is a gradual and expansive nature to the kingdom, that then there is also this time when it comes to its full flowering, that is, that it is all done, that there is, the tares will be uprooted, they will be cast into the barn, they will be ready for the fire, and then there will be the wheat that is sown, that we uh, are then taken to the new heavens, the new earth. We know then uh, that, of course, this is fully consummated in Christ's coming, and he takes some time, and will take some, some, a lot of time next week to really unpack the difference between what has been believed about Christ's coming for a long time, which is that there is a single second coming, um, and then instead of what the dispensationalists will look at, they will look at First, first Thessalonians 4, and see a first second coming and a second second coming, or what we call a second and a third coming. Uh, the first coming, first of the second comings, is really a, a secret coming of God, of uh, what we may call the, the coming of the rapture, right? Christ comes, and the only ones that see him are those that are believers, as they are raptured up before um, some kind of tribulation, a seven-year tribulation that is mentioned. Um, and this uh, is mentioned there in First Thessalonians 4, and if you'd like to turn to that, because he does look at First Thessalonians 4 and quickly shows how uh, seeing that as a secret rapture doesn't seem to, or a secret coming um, that is a rapture, uh, it doesn't seem to be consonant with the way that Paul speaks here in Thessalonians. So we go to yeah, First Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'll read this for us quickly, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, we have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together, then in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This passage right there, specifically looking there at verse 17, that we who are alive and left are caught up together in the clouds. This is, this is what uh, many, uh, like Walford and others, will, will call the, the rapture, right? That those are who are believers um, who are alive at the, at the time of the end, right? Because, of course, believers have died and will continue to die until that time. Uh, they are called up into the air during this coming, and then they will say, this must be then referring to the first second coming, before then Christ's second, second coming after the tribulation. Uh, but then what Gentry points out is that though they call this a secret coming, that Christ comes and that those that are unbelievers do not see him, that there seems to be a lot of pomp and circumstance for a secret coming there in verse 16. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet. This does not seem to be the coming of a secret. This seems to be one of great display and circumstance. That is what many throughout the Christian faith for so many years have believed is that this is the one and same second coming as there is only one second coming. Uh, Christ will return. Um, now it says we will be called up with him. Uh, what does that mean? We will be called then to a judgment. There is a judgment that is coming, right? And there we will be judged. Uh, we know that Christ will be that judge. And what does that judgment entail? Well, we know that we will be uh, judged singly. And again, this is where uh, Gentry says, well, uh, there is going to be a single judgment, though the uh, dispensationalists uh, will also try to claim uh, that there are many. Um, in the dispensation, or the dictionary of premillennial theology, uh, there is this quote that he puts out. He says, although one judgment into which several judgments are merged is often assumed by Christian theologians, a thoughtful, inductive study of Scripture revealed a minimum of, it, of at least seven major divine judgments and as many as 12 well-defined judgments, depending on where one begins. Uh, they see many judgments, just as they see multiple comings of Christ. Um, but as then, uh, as then we see in Gentry, as he turns with us to Acts 17, he no, there is indeed one judgment, though all are judged at that time. Um, we see that there doesn't seem to be evidence for many judgments that the dictionary here seems to indicate. Acts 17, 31 reads this way. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there can be no question who is being referred to, that this is Christ who will judge all, because he is the one, the man that has been raised from the dead. But we know that this, we see this judgment being on a fixed day, and the whole world is going to be judged on this fixed day. Um, and so this does seem to, again, run to this idea that we're coming toward a point that there's not going to be this complicated uh, kind of map that's going to happen and we have to wait for this to happen and then this to happen and all these different kind of uh, things that, that many are going to try to espouse that the world we are now in these latter days and we are coming toward a point. But history, and this is what, uh, what Gentry really harps on in chapter 12, is that Christians have a philosophy of history. History is going somewhere. And we should, we should look toward that point, 
knowing that God is strengthening us to do what he has commanded us to do, and that it is not in vain. And I'll put this lastly. We should not expect that we are going to be obedient to the Lord and that it will be in vain. 1 Corinthians even says this very clearly uh, for us, that in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if you'd like to look at that, uh, it is not in vain that we labor for the Lord, that we labor for Christ. And yet, uh, even those in the all camp would like to say, well, all those things that you do, the only thing that is not in vain is whatever you do in, this, in seeking the conversion of souls, right? Uh, that's not in vain. That will have eternal uh, implication. And yet, what else will have eternal implication? Well, not, not much. There is... There are many, and even the all-mill camp, it says we, we cannot expect the redemption of, of anything except that of the individual, right? The individual soul uh, as redeemed. And yet, we don't seem, that doesn't seem to be the case. That doesn't even seem to be the case even in Romans 1, as it says, the world is awaiting that time when the resurrection of the sons of glory will take place. Why would the world yearn and wait for something that will mean its utter and total destruction, but then... We don't see that that's going to be the case at all. And that brings us to the last point, is that there is, in the eternal state, there is a heaven, there is indeed a hell, but there is also an earth. The earth is not absent from the eternal state. It is not this earth in the sense that it is not the sinful, cursed earth, but it will be burned in fire, as Second Peter says, but what will happen should we expect that that means it's all going to burn away and everything about it will be gone? No, we see it is reforged, it is remade, right? It is turned into the new heaven, or the new earth. And in that new earth, there will be no more sin. There will be no more uh, death and destruction. But all will be made right. It will be as it was to be from the beginning. And so there is this very physical component to uh, the new Earth. Now we do know, as he points out, which is kind of a funny thing for us to think about, that physical uh, bodies, we will be resurrected, we will have physical bodies. Physical bodies can indeed be in heaven, because there are at least three in heaven right now, right? There is Christ, of course, his physical body, his glorified body is indeed in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. Um, but then indeed, two more people went into heaven bodily. That is Elijah and that is Enoch. Uh, they did not die. Their bodies cannot be found upon this earth. Um, as the rest of the saints who uh, died before us, their bodies can indeed be found on earth. But they will be resurrected. And so uh, there seems to be this still this connection between the new heavens and the new earth. The heaven right now is uncursed. It remains uncursed. But there will be a connection then between the new earth where then it will be uncursed as well. And of course, we see that connection in the great city of New Jerusalem um, in the very last chapter of the Bible. Um, is that where Christ is reigning? Um, and it comes down from heaven to the earth. So that's a lot um, to, to throw at you, kind of the fire hose um, that I'm uh, opening up for y'all. But we do have seven minutes, um, not a whole long time, but seven minutes for questions as we wrap things up today. Uh, as for those who were here at the beginning, for expectation of next time, we're going to be going over chapters 13 and 14 next time. 13 and 14. We did 12. Yeah, we just did 12. We did 11 and 12 just now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
I don't know if this is a rabbit trail or not, but That's all right. I want some application yeah. to a conversation that I had. And uh, it seems like um, the church or Christians let me say that mm-hmm. Christians have a problem with this equity of inclusion mm-hmm. and that they have problems with a God that calls sons Mm-hmm. But they don't have. They they don't necessarily. Um, but they don't have a problem with a guilty guilty man that chooses not to accept the free gift. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you teach that? How do you explain that? How sure. Apply that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we weren't fighting. <laughs> but it was pretty helpful. <laughs> and they, I don't know. Sure. I think that that's, a, um, that's a very difficult one to explain because I think that right now, um, you know, well, I, I read a, a blog article the other day that, that really uh, hammered this on the head for me, um, and that is that uh, the modern world cannot stand Calvinism because the modern world loves equality and Calvinism implies inequality. Um, and that's true, right? That God does not, uh, he does not choose all. Um, and that implies some kind of inequality uh, that the modern, modern West doesn't particularly like. Um, but uh, I think we have to, it's because, it's, I, I kind of come back to this uh, in this discussion with somebody, is that they are, they're starting from the wrong place. They start from, from man, and they look at what man does, they look at who I am, they say, this is my starting point, this is my reference point, and I think to myself, well, I mean, yeah, I've done some bad, uh, but I wouldn't just throw me into jail for everything that I've done, because uh, I'm a decent human being, and so most people are probably decent, um, and so if most people are decent, uh, then why would God not choose uh, those people? They might, so it is kind of this, this, this inherent idea that just by being human and being decent, doing decent things, that I deserve the choice. And if I didn't get the choice, then that there's something wrong with God. That seems unjust to me. Instead of flipping that and saying, let's start with the reference point of God. God is absolutely holy. God is absolutely righteous. And all men have desperately and wickedly rebelled against him in that. And if that's the case, then we deserve no choice, and God's choosing of anyone is out of sheer mercy. Now, that does push us to the mystery of why, does, why is he merciful to some and why is he not to others. Um, but then, at the very least, we have to acknowledge it's not out of unfairness. It was unfair for him to be merciful at all. Um, and then, so then we fall on our, our, our face in gratitude, and we have to approach it. So as so many texts do, as they get close to this, Point. They continue down this rabbit trail. Once they get close to this point, God is merciful to whom he is merciful and not to whom he is not. Then what is the response? Who are you, O oh man, uh, to say unto your father, why have you made me thus? Right? Uh, then we do have to acknowledge at some point this is mystery. We come before him and we say, 
Lord, you are the potter. You can make some vessels unto honor and some unto dishonor. Um, and that is for you to decide, not for me. Um, so I think there is that, that first step, right, of seeing the right starting points. And then we, we have a, a, a posture of gratitude. And then the other step of acknowledging this is mysterious and we don't know um, how or why. God does everything that he does. And it's like that same person does not have a problem with, with the sin. Well, they have a problem with the sin. But they don't have a problem with the sin in the sense that they have it. Right. Mm-hmm. They have a problem believing that God is powerful enough to overcome their sin. Mm-hmm. And it's the same root. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Very good point. I'd like to make comments. Um, J.C. Ralph said that in the Book of Holiness, mm-hmm. that he wrote, that if you get the doctrine of sin wrong, and he started with that, by the way, in, in the first chapter he covered, if you get the argument wrong, that's a good quote. Yeah, if you get the doctrine of sin wrong, you get uh, so much else wrong, because it isn't so... In, all of the doctrines are connected, right? We don't, we don't believe in uh, kind of this compartmentalization, right, that is so common in modern thought, modern science, modern philosophy, modern education, that everything's compartmentalized. No, they, they all come together. Your doctrine of man will influence your doctrine of sin, will influence your doctrine of God, will influence all of these are together. And so, um, yes, even John Calvin, right, we, I, I talked about us starting at the wrong spot, and that is true in one sense, but John Calvin says if we, if we start at man, we should also see, right, the holiness, the sheer holiness of God, because we, we should, if we were honestly looking at ourselves, see the sinful nature that we have and see uh, that we do not measure up to something. And we even inherently know this. And how, if we inherently know this, then there must be a God who is perfect, who is righteous, who is holy. And um, then we, our, our sight should be drawn up to him. Um, and we should see, though we looked, first we looked and we saw gray, then we see him in his pure white, and then we look down and we see just how dark uh, the black is upon our heart. Um, and so, uh, as that's uh, in Calvin's uh, first and second book in his Institutes, so, which I recommend as reading to everybody, though I know it's not light reading. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. It was very perplexing to me when you were reading in Matthew about um, because of their unbelief, Mm-hmm. God couldn't, or, or God didn't perform. Maybe. Right. I wouldn't say couldn't. Well, he, yeah. He mm-hmm. obviously doesn't have a problem with unbelief. He can mm-hmm. overcome unbelief. Of course. So why why does that? Why is why is it stated like that? I think that there is a. I wouldn't read that as as if Christ could not. Right. Um, if Christ did not. Right. He did, he chose not to uh, to perform signs and miracles there. Um, as, a, as for why, uh, I think part of that is uh, an emphasis on the importance of belief, that, that he does uh, require belief for those who are uh, his own. Um, not that he is not the one making them believe, he indeed is. And could he have made those men believe? Yes, of course he could have. Um, but he did not. In his eternal will, um, he did not. And, and therefore, if he did not, and in his sovereignty, um, why would he uh, produce signs uh, for those who would never indeed believe. Uh, he even does, he, he kind of alludes to this when he talks to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, give us a sign, give us a sign. And Christ says, I've already given you a sign. You should know. You should know that I am the Christ. You should know I am the, the Messiah as prophesied. And indeed, you already have a sign. And he says, what? He says, oh, uh, there will be the sign of, of Jonah. 
and you'll see it. And you, you should know. And of course, what was the sign of Jonah? That, that the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days, and then he will resurrect. And indeed, he did that. And so all these men would have a sign to some extent. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, do you have a... Not quite ever, but most of the time, right? yeah. Most of the time, there's a connection to heart understanding. And so I think in this one, it's kind of parallel to that. He mm-hmm. doesn't just walk into a new city and just heal people without some kind of spiritual mm-hmm. aspect. I don't know. Do y'all agree with that? Because, I mean, I've gone through to look at every miracle. But the, the, only, the only one that comes to mind that would not be that necessarily, not that we, not that there were not those that were converted, because I'm sure, sure that there were, is the, the or the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Because that is specifically referenced as there are those that came because of that and not because of. Well, when right. that happened, they all wanted to make them king and wanted to exactly. mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but I would say, yeah, for, for the most part, we do we see, we see miracles connected with belief. They are pointing toward um, Christ and his divinity and then many uh, believe. Mm-hmm. Well, also, um, in synagogue, um, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, and he looked at the heart, at the heart, because Jesus could see your heart mm-hmm. as, a, as a spiritual man, and he was angry, and he looked at him with disdain because of the hardness of heart of what Jesus did, who he was, and then they see him. Right, exactly, yeah, and that's that's a, but I do believe there was a uh, that does there seems to be a pointing to the faith though of the of the man with the withered hand that he would come to Christ uh, at all, right? And so, which of course that's always the devil nature of. Of preaching, and so one one could even argue even in even in those spaces where we do not see directly those that are converted uh, because of the miracles God does, at least we probably expect there were those that did believe because of it, and those that that didn't. Right, and it kind of it puts a yeah, it puts a um, contrast there. Um, we are at we are over time, so yeah, uh, I'll pray and then I can answer your question off the recording. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us and that you would indeed uh, help us as we continue uh, today uh, with our our day that we have set aside or that you have set aside for yourself and that we uh, come obediently to to your throne to worship you in truth and in spirit. Prepare our hearts this day, we ask, that uh, the distractions of this world would fall away and that we would uh, bow before your throne and sing praises to your name. Uh, For indeed, you are worthy of all laud and honor. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.